the National Archives podcast series. Suddenly, all roads led to Munich, 1936. Why I wrote Winter Games. Presented by Rachel Johnson, as part of our Writer of the Month series of talks. Um, I start from the principle that um, other people's family history is stultifyingly boring, but one's own is always terribly interesting, which is why... You know, this, the National Archive is, is a hugely popular, wonderful national resource and so on, and why um, Who Do You Think You Are is um, a wonderful programme. I was, did some filming for Who Do You Think You Are for their programme on a certain member of my family, and which involved me going to Versailles and seeing the house where my grandmother was born. I'm a journalist, and this is the first time I'd ever written historical fiction or even had the idea to write historical fiction. Up to now, I'd written, um, you know, volumes of diaries and also contemporary zeitgeisty books. I refuse to call it chiclet, um, Notting Hill, Shire Hill, and so on. But then I was just seized with this family story, a kind of combination of the two sides of my family. Um, and it seemed to me, I had, it was one of those ones where I had to write, it just would not let me go. And it was three years of absolute misery, I want you to know. And the, but the best bit about it was doing the research. And I mean, I fell so in love with my research that the novel took far longer to write. I think I was two years late in the end. And I'm going to explain a bit why. Um, I got married at age 26 and I discovered quite quickly, as you do, that my mother-in-law Lady Margaret Sterningad was a daughter of an earl, and she, it was sort of known that she had been sent out to finishing school in Munich in, eight, no, in February 1938. If you think that the Anschluss, when Germany invaded and took over Austria, was in April 1938, that seemed to me already to be a fascinating part of her life and an extraordinary... I thought behind that or that must lie in an enormous um, tale of Anglo-German relations and the English aristocracy's determination to send their girls abroad to be finished in Germany rather than France or Italy. And why, and why did they do that? So that, I'm already fascinated by that detail. But that detail came after my knowledge throughout my whole life that my own grandmother, i.e. not my mother-in-law, who was the daughter of a Jewish professor at Oxford, who was the Oxford Professor of Paleography, had been sent also in 1938 to Bavaria as well for rather different reasons. And the reason my grandmother, despite being half Jewish, was sent out to Munich and Regensburg in 1938 as well was because this lady, Helen Tracy Lowe Porter, was the translator of all Thomas Mann's works for Knopf. And if you pick up The Magic Mountain or Buddenbrooks or Death in Venice, you will read my great-grandmother's words, Helen Tracy Lowe Porter. She married Elias Lowe, who was the Oxford Professor of Paleography, and they had three daughters. There they are in Biarritz. There, there are their three daughters, and my grandmother, Beachy, Beatrice, is in the middle. So she was also sent out to Germany in 1938 in order to per perfect her German, because both her parents were massive Germanophiles, spoke, spoke German fluently and insi insisted that their daughters learnt German, because it was regarded as the language of Goethe and Schiller and all the rest of it. So, my grandmother and my mother-in-law, both in Munich in 1938, very, very different 
milieus they came from. My grandmother's from a Jewish uh, academic background. My mother-in-law's from a titled aristocratic background. Therefore, I felt I had the seeds of a story. What happened to these girls in Munich? Why were they there? And in particular, on my grandmother's side, I know that she fell in love with a Nazi um, ski instructor and medical student. Now, when I say a Nazi ski instructor and medical student, you'll much, probably know much more about the period than I do. Um, if you're in any sort of profession or wanted to be, you had to join the Nazi party. So when I say Nazi ski instructor, you have this vision of somebody hiling away um, as he skis down the slopes, but it wasn't quite like that. He just had to be a member of the party. You would have thought that my great-grandfather would not want to send his daughter to Germany in 1938, or 1937, I think she went. It wasn't as if he um, was ignorant, because in 1938 he himself left England and moved to Princeton, because he said if there was such a miasma in the world atmosphere, where he became great friends with Albert Einstein, who wrote him letters, which um, I wish you had them here, but they are in Corpus Christi, which I went to look at the letters well, which recorded things that Einstein had said to my great-grandfather, and they were things like, you know, persecution is, will be all right for the Jews, the Jews are used to persecution, it's the Germans who are going to suffer in the end, and things like that. I mean, amazing things that I saw. Um, so I had to sort of find out what were these stories behind my mother-in-law and my grandmother. When it came to my grandmother, it was very hard. She had five children, among them my mother. They're all still alive. You would have thought that if you were, a, so if you were one of um, five children, you would quite want to know what your mother had got up to in Germany in the 30s. It was absolutely astonishing that they, all of them, professed a complete ignorance of what my grandmother had got up to. She'd fallen in love with a ski instructor. I knew it ended terribly badly. I don't particularly want to tell you because it's not in the book. Um, what actually happened to my grandmother in the 30s, and I decided actually not to write that, but to, to create a different story around her. When it came to my mother-in-law, I hope I'm being clear, there was my grandmother, the Jewish one, and then there's my mother-in-law, the titled one, so try and separate It was much easier because I discovered, via putting out feelers in my researches, um, going into the history, going to the Wiener Library, going interviewing Germans and talking to my grandmother, I began to put together a picture of all the girls who'd been sent out to Munich to be finished, all equally Dresden or Berlin, but mainly Munich in the 30s. I also managed to discover their names and also find out quite a few of them were still alive. And this is why the book took so long, because... What happened was I thought, I want to get the detail right. I've got to go, I've got to know what, how they spoke, their speech patterns, not just what they ate for breakfast, you know, the boiled egg and the black bread. I wanted to know how these girls spoke. So I got a about, list of 20 of these women. They lived everywhere. They lived in, they lived in Somerset, on, in North Wales, in Scotland. And I just became obsessional, and I went to see each one. After I'd seen about four... I realised that, and you will, I hope, agree, that what I was hearing was pure oral history. And I thought, at this point, my journalist instinct kind of overrode the fictional historical instinct. 
And I went to the BBC and I said, I've, I've got to record these people. We've got to do a programme about these women who are in Munich in the 30s because you will not believe your ears. And, they, and um, they commissioned, the Radio 4 commissioned me. So then I had to go back. They gave me some equipment. And I said, oh, I've worked for Radio 4. I can go and interview them myself and record them. So I went back around, you know, Port Merion and Somerset and there in London. <laughs> and anyway, so I went and I interviewed them all and I was absolutely thrilled. I then sent the disc off to the BBC and um, about a month later the producer rang me up and she said Rachel it's great and you know when you can hear this bark coming and then she said but it's not in broadcast quality and I said you, what do you mean and she said well you've done as you've been recording it you need you know it's not quite right can you just do the do the interviews again <laughs> so I thought oh my goodness anyway by the time I, well, by the time the programme came out, I'd been to see each one of these women three times. And actually, that made all the difference, because they knew me. I mean, although when, when you went to see them, you sort of, you couldn't, they wouldn't know what they'd had for breakfast, or who, whether it was Blair or Brown. They really remembered everything about their time in Germany, and they were the most fantastic resource for the book. I mean... They were the ones, I think, who make it come alive on a human level, uh, just in the same way that you have to just go back to prime resource material for what was going on in the time politically or what the adverts in the Times looked like or how much it cost to get uh, on the, the little railway from Munich to Oberammergau. But it was the human actuality, I think, that, for me, made the book real and come alive and so that's why I spent so long on it. Of course I also had to go to Germany as well as see all these lady, old ladies in their Chelsea apartments and um, if you know anything, I'm sure you do, that the most n notorious English woman in Germany of the period was, was Unity Mitford and so I spent, I went, did several research trips um, starting in Berchtesgaden where um, there is an intercontinental house, a mountain resort, built on the site of Martin Bormann's old house. And that seemed to me to give me the structure for the actual book, which was this extraordinary contrast between a sort of luxury spa built on the site of Martin Bormann's chalet. So that's why I came up with this dual time zone. So it's kind of 1936 and 2006. So in a sense, it's, historic, it's two periods of historical fiction when you think that 2006 is now also ancient history. It was pre-credit crunch. It was pre-bonfire of the bankers. It was a time when we thought that, you know, house prices would always go up and everybody could borrow 100% to buy, you know. So in a sense, it's, it's a novel with two historical periods. But luckily, I sort of knew 2006. Um, the Osteria was where Unity Mitford, and I went and had lunch there, used to sit at a table waiting for Hitler to notice her, and he did notice her. And um, I interviewed one of the chaps, somebody called Mickey Byrne, who was also there at the time. He was a Times correspondent, and he sat with her once and waited for Hitler. And then um, Hitler gave him a copy of Mein Kampf, and he realised he hadn't got Hitler to sign his copy of Mein <coughs> Kampf, he told me. And so the next time he saw Hitler, Hitler signed his copy of Mein Kampf. And I was with this man. He was ancient in Port Marion. And I said, well, can I see your signed copy of the Mein Kampf? And he said... 
oh, good God, no, I lost it the next day, he said. I was driving I was driving in my car, or Triumph, and I had a hole in the bottom of the car, and it just fell through. <laughs> so, you know, the, if, only, if only people had known. So what so far we've, we've, we've established is I failed to find out anything from my family. I got much, much more... Um, detail from the women who are still alive who'd been in Munich, who are Debs, like my mother-in-law, who I interviewed for this radio documentary, um, Margaret Budd, and Mickey Byrne, who the one who had the signed copy of Mein Kampf. Lots of, they're all called Daphne, basically, just, just hold that. They're all called Daphne, Belinda, you know, Diana. It was a real set of girls who were out in Germany. And I was fascinated by what they'd actually what did they actually do? You know, what they, when they got up, what happened? Did, did they, what did they do after breakfast? And they all just had these crystalline memories for it. You know, they could say things like, yes, we would... I mean, basically, the day was, you got up, you had a sort of lesson, which was, you know, a fairly sketchy affair. Because, in, in, a, in essence, the Germans were on their knees, they'd been denuded by Weimar inflation. So... There were these, all these threadbare countesses who lived on the one mark a day that these English girls um, were paying for their board and their keep and their, and their lesson. And so they provided a pretty minimal service. and they, were, they weren't really finishing schools. I went to the one where my mother-in-law had been and it was just a sort of house, really, on a, on a road by the English garden in Munich. And you thought, that's not a finishing school. Essentially, it was a way that the English just got rid of these girls because... <laughs> If you think about it, you know, they went from, you know, schoolrooms to marriage and there was not much in between. And so this year in Munich or wherever was the time they could just get away from the sort of ghastly chaperoned boredom of um, London life or, you know, before they married some chinless wonder from the shires. You know, this was their one year where they could just spread their wings. And so I did establish, I'm afraid, that they did get up to all sorts of things surrounded by boys which is pretty typical because you know they all those boys in uniform were very attractive and the only boys they sort of knew were Deb's delights and their own brothers so when they went off to Germany they found them all terribly sexy and um, David Price Jones is a good historian on the period who's a biographer of unity and um, I interviewed him not for the documentary, but for the book. And he says that Unity Mitford would bring a different SS officer back every night because um, some cousin, Clementine, was in the room next door and was terribly shocked. But, you know, these countesses used to just go to bed and sort of pretend nothing was happening, the old, who were running the finishing schools. Because this is Margaret Budd again in a beer keller. And... Um, <laughs> She told me the most astonishing story about <coughs> when she was asked out to dinner by Unity and the other two people who were present in the beer keller. Were <laughs> makes your ears stretch. This is Prilly Crowther. She's still alive. This is her house in Holland Park. And she was sent out to a German boarding school, mixed boarding school, called Markwitzstein in Bavaria. And so I've based a lot of the character on her as well, because she was she remembered things like what they had at Eleven's, which was a hot baked potato, which you kept in your pocket because it kept your hands warm until lunch. Do you see? Or no, you get after you had second breakfast was hot baked potato, which you ate at eleven, by which time it was cold, but your hands had been warm for two hours. Details like that, I think, make everything. 
You can't find out details like that unless you actually go and talk to people who are writing historical fiction. That was her, one of her many boyfriends at Mark Wichstein. And when I saw this photograph, she showed this to me in her album. She said, oh, and that's Hans. And I, I said, you see Hans, I see a Nazi. And that's the real difference. If you were in Germany and you were 16 or 17, and that was your friend, that was Hans. Now, but now we look at him and we've got a, we looked at it from a completely different perspective. There were various books. But I also found a lot of, um, luckily, and I advise you all to do this, people write memoirs. They're not always published, but they are bloody useful um, if you know who's done them. Because I found this is just a couple of the ones I've got. Um, for example, Jean Tong, who's now dead, um, her, her memoir is very useful about sort of being arrested or, you know, being, being held up at a rally. A reminiscences of gilded youthful years of World War Two, and when the gilding began to fall. And this was one of my memoir about my great grandparents who met in Bavaria and who then moved to Princeton, written by my great aunt. <coughs> just terribly useful, but you just got to know where to look and who, who to talk to to find them. In terms of Germany, that was really hard because what I discovered pretty soon was I decided to write a novel set 70 years ago in a country I didn't live in and a language I didn't speak. Now, that, so that made researching and putting together a sort of context and a milieu very hard. So I did lots of trips to Munich. And the best thing anyone has said about the book is, was Prilly Crowther, who said that she felt as if she was back in Munich when she read my description of going to the Freienkirche or through the Rathaus or, you know, or going to the, the Viktualien Markt which is the food market in Munich. I did lots of trips out to Germany and appalled by my incompetence of not speaking German more than O-level level. Um, so it made it terribly hard, actually. And luckily, there were a couple of people very helpful who pointed me in the right directions and who really helped. And I, I found these people in the London Library. For example, news, contemporaneous newspapers of the time, very useful. This is produced in Garmisch in 1936. The Winter Games are in Garmisch, not in um, Munich. And then on the girls' front, that was great fun, in the young Debs, because I discovered things, people, sort of, the word got out that I was doing this book, Debs would talk to people, and I began to receive things in the post, which was wonderful. Modern Girl was like the, the version, like Bunty, you know, and this is a cover. The cover says Lady Anne and Lady Joan Hope, the two elder daughters of the Marquis and Marchioness of Linlithgow. They are modern girls of the type to admire. <laughs> you know, that very. Can you imagine kind of growing up when you had these sorts of expectations and the, the decorum imposed on these girls? Bluebird magazine. You know, I suppose it's the equivalent of what. You know, Kim Kardashian? No. I can't think <laughs> who would be the... They just... Look at this darling little girl. This is Susan Armstrong Joan Jones, the 11-year-old daughter of the Countess of Ross. Susan spends a great deal of time at Burr Castle, Lady Ross's Irish home, and is already a well-known little figure at the hunt. <laughs> <laughs> just, I mean, things like that, you... The, the publications of the time, the way people spoke. The other thing that was very useful, going to the Wiener Library, which has got the best collection of Jewish 
historical, from all the way back, Jewish history, essentially. So in order to explore Anglo-German relations, I went to the Wiener, and, um, because they got copies of the publications of the time that basic in the 30s, like the Link or the Anglo-German Review, which set out well, the tone of, of sort of that period. And you realise to what extent there was such a yearning for the Germans to be the good guys. Obviously, the pieces are all... I mean, talk about looking on the bright side and glass half full. I mean, they, they were longing for Hitler to turn out good. And, of course, he didn't. And it, sort of when war was declared in 1939, all the aristos who'd sucked up to the regime and who'd gone to the champagne parties in Carlton House Terrace who had gone off to the um, what do you call them all the rallies and so on sometimes at the invitation of the Third Reich then uh, but to, to do them credit in 1939 the Aristos realised that they'd got it wrong but up until then literally 1938 the editor of the Times of course you, I looked at all the Times which is at the British, at London Library and also now luckily archived so you can look at it online um, in 1938, for example, Mickey Byrne, who was the man with the copy of Mein Kampf, was sent to do a royal tour of Canada. When he got back, the, the editor of the Times said, well, you know, what would you like to do now? And Mickey Byrne said, well, what, there's going to be a war. You know, what, what do you mean? What am I, what do you, he said, do you want to go off and be the royal correspondent somewhere else? And the editor of the Times, Geoffrey Dawson, who was a fantastic appeaser, said, no, no, there's not. And he didn't, you know, say there was this sense that nothing was going to go wrong even though the Times was publishing letters from Jewish academics saying, you know, that you've got to start, you know, telling the Times readers what really was going on. But if you look at the Times, you only find out from the letters page, and, you know, you only find out about the boat race, really, otherwise, or, you know, Lady Ross of the Hunt. Very, very odd. The tiny bits from the Munich correspondence um, would appear, but not nearly so much as you would expect. So that was interesting too, because you think paper records going to tell me everything. The Tatler was very interesting in, I think, in revealing the extent to which the English upper classes were absolutely toadying up to the Third Reich in a way you would, would embarrass them to remember. I mean, this, for example, was I think from Tatler, the ambassador's guests. This is Ribbentrop. I mean pages of people who trotted up those steps to the marble hall in Carlton House. Almost every single lord, anybody who was anybody in London went to Rodden Ribbentrop's parties and thought that the Third Reich was a jolly good thing with the you know, straight motor roads and full employment. And they tuned out right up until the last minute the realities. And my mother-in-law's father was one of the main bods in this regard. He was uh, the Earl of Glasgow and he would stand up in the House of Lords and sort of basically say Hitler was jolly good chap and slightly misunderstood and maybe took, you know, taking things a bit far was about as critical as um, you would hear them go. I think the main thing that amazed me was that for the women who'd spent any time in Germany, in Nazi Germany, that was an uncorrupted magical period for them, even if afterwards, you know, they drove Red Cross ambulances. They, ref they were so refused to believe. They would say things like, 
I cannot believe that the lovely people I spent you know six months with could do things like that. There was they still in a state of total denial, and they still all of them said, apart from one who was very frightened, called Daphne Brock, uh, who lives in Bruton, all of them were were just. They, their faces lit up when they talked about the time, you know, when they were taken off to some rally or they went off to Magda, you know, they went to some wedding or even when there were sort of putches going on around them. One of them, they refused to leave. Margaret, my mother-in-law refused to leave. She was having such a lovely time. And Prilly Crowther, the one in the Holland Park drawing room, she was in Munich and there was a putch it wasn't the Kristallnacht or anything like that. It was just uh, it's, uh, my office was attacked. And there was news of this in London. And so her father rang up and said, you've got to come home. And Prilly said, no, no, you know, it's perfectly all right. Don't worry about me. And so the, sometimes the fathers had to drive out to Bavaria to sort of hoik them back. They had the most lovely time. The sad thing was, was that all their friends were killed. I mean, that's, they still say it's terribly sad. All the people I knew were killed. One of the interviews I did was with a lady called Betty Lawson, and she's still alive. And she, had, I thought I had a great story, because she, she told me in the second time I interviewed her that she had been with Unity on the ambulance train that was organised to get her out. When she, Unity shot herself in the head in the English garden on the 3rd of September, Hitler organised a train to get her back to Dover, where she was met by her father. Anyway, what's, Betty Lawson claimed she was on the train and that Unity was pregnant. She said she, was, she knew Unity very well and, you know, she, she wouldn't have said pregnant, by the way. In, that, in those days, you would say starting a baby or something like that. They all started babies rather than got pregnant. Um, she said Unity was, had morning sickness. but So then, actually, there was a whole other investigation into whether Unity was pregnant and I think it's established she probably wasn't or if it was it wasn't by Hitler. Martin Bright of the New Statesman did a whole program called Hitler's English Girl about this very topic so when Betty Lawson appeared to confirm it I thought this is a real story anyway then I had to then I compared her second the first and second and third interviews with Betty Lawson and I realized that the details were slightly different in each one and I decided that she wasn't a credible witness and I couldn't so we actually didn't include any of that in the documentary I made so that's actually a good thing and a bad thing if you interview someone three times you realise that even if you're interviewing the same person on the same subject they will still say something different and eyewitness accounts are very porous and so in fact all history is very shot through of holes. If the same person will give you three accounts of the same incident what are we to make of any written record? But I did use um, and I will admit this freely because they were so helpful to me the women I interviewed their turns of phrase and their idiom was so brilliant and I, I couldn't have rewritten them so in a lot of cases when you're reading Betsy Barton Hill who is the Deb, who is not Daphne, the one who is my, based on my grandmother. So you're reading verbatim, really, the speech patterns of a Deb, who's now in her 90s. I did, when I did Jewish Book Week, I had a couple of people coming up to me and saying that their, 
new people who'd married Germans, and that made life difficult because some of them stayed in Germany. Um, I thought that, I, for one mad moment, I thought of doing a book about the women, English women who'd married German women after the German men after the war. And I just said I had to force myself not to even start thinking about it because I knew it would be a three-year obsession <laughs> again, and I couldn't go through it again. I should also say that in terms of writing and research is that when I started writing Winter Games, I was then I was working at the Sunday Times, and then so I was sort of having this lovely life, writing a column and writing this novel, and then I lost my job on the Sunday Times, and I moved to the Lady, and so I started ed editing a weekly magazine. But the lady proved to be a wonderful resource because it's in the basement of the lady. They have in cellophane every single edition since 1875. So I went through, and the domestic and the ads at the back were wonderful. Pick gave you such a good picture of the period because in sort of 32 it was all you know pastry cooks needed, and then in 1936 it was. Austrian woman with two children, or 37, Austrian woman with two children seeks a um, place to live, can cook. And, and you saw the beginning of, of the exodus of the Jews from Europe come. And you would, then you would see, you know, 1938, you know, tons of, of Austrian and Polish Jewish people coming to this country, trying to find work, escaping from Nazi Germany. <coughs> also, it really gave you a picture of how limited the life of the, of the young woman was not just modern girl, but, you know, the career options open to women, as evinced in the back of the lady. You know, you could be a nurse if you're really lucky, a secretary or a teacher or a, or a companion. You know, just the world, the world it exposed was one of such bourgeois limitation and sort of servitude. So the war and Germany, so when these girls were sent to Germany, they felt they, were, they had been sprung from this. Mm. And the war then did this on a much larger scale for, much, for a much wider section of, of women in, 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 all over Europe. You know, bang, that was it. I've just had to write the introduction to the new edition of a diary of... Sorry, was it... I can't even remember now. A.M. E. Delafield, someone remind me. What's it called? A diary of a, 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 diary of a, a provincial lady. lady. Okay, yeah. I've just... <laughs> and um, that's... That sort of is in a much that's a macrocosmic um, picture of something you would see in the lady, which is a woman who was a house. She ran a small house in Devon, then she became a war worker. You know, this was the trajectory in the 30s. You know, women were released from domesticity, but this going to Germany or going away on a year, their sort of gap yards, um, <laughs> was. You know, well, that's why I think they look back on it as this. It, in the same way, people look back at the war. They look back on their time in Germany as an idyllic interlude. What um, there was a political reason why these girls were very much welcomed when they arrived in Munich was because they were sort of invited to, to events like the found, laying the foundation stone of the House of German Art or whatever. Because Hitler thought that the aristocracy were very important. He did made no distinction, I think, between the House of Lords and the House of Commons. And he thought if these knobs were coming, like Londonry, or you know, then then he he was they were, these were the influentials. He misunderstood who the influentials were, which is why these Debs were very were given the royal treatment in Munich, because it was thought they would go back and tell their fathers and their uncles what a great guy Hitler was. Um, so that, that's what happened. You know, they were like these carrier pigeons. But Daphne Brock was the one who sort of didn't feel it. Obviously, Prussia and Bavaria are very 
very different. He had this Prussian officer who obviously didn't like Hitler. And uh, but Bavaria were all mad for him. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 16th of August 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted at the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>